You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast alongside Rob Rang. Everyone should be feeling a lot better today than they did last Monday. The Seahawks raided Arizona and silenced Cliff Kingsbury's offense in a 27-10 win over the Cardinals. Rob, 3-1 and sounds a heck of a lot better than 2-2. Two and two. It certainly does, and what a performance too! You know, it's not like the like the the Seahawks went in there and just barely eked out a win. I thought that this was you know clearly their best performance from top to bottom uh, of this young season, and and bodes well for the future getting that very first win in the division in your back pocket. And plus, they got out of it healthy. That's the big news. No major injuries, which in Arizona that's been a problem in recent years. We'll start off today's show revisiting the biggest news story of the day. The Seahawks will induct the perfect candidate for the twelfth member of the Ring of Honor in the second quarter. You've got questions, and we're going to answer as many as we can for our Monday mailbag segment. And we'll close out the show with some defensive observations from Seattle's big win to start off divisional play in Arizona. For your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks, last year the Seahawks lost a giant in Paul Allen who passed away on October 15th due to complications from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The team celebrated his life with a commemorative jersey patch for the rest of the season and now the former owner will live on forever as a member of the organization's ring of honor. Is there really a more fitting selection to be the 12th inductee into this exclusive group, Rob? No, not in my opinion. There's not. I mean, what, what Paul Allen did for this franchise, um, you know, is just absolutely remarkable. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of longtime Seahawks fans who remember just how close this team was to moving. And, you know, and Paul Allen basically came, uh, you know, and, and saved the saved football in this te- in, in this sport. You know, they, they say that uh, T-Mobile Park or whatever they call it now is it was the building that the King Griffey Jr. built. Well, obviously, Paul Allen built uh, CenturyLink and, and brought the Seahawks there. So I think that he is the perfect uh, 12th member to be to put into this, the Seahawks ring of honor. Um, and, and so I think it's so cool that that his sister, Miss Jody Allen, um, that, that she's going to be the one who is going to be, uh, you know, pulling up the flag. Um, to commemorate that that incredible moment. So what they're going to be doing on Thursday, expanding on what you just added there, Jody Allen, his sister, who's now the team chair, she's going to be the 12th man, uh, pulling down the 12th man flag before the game at 4.50. They are going to be uh, doing a, a small little ceremony before the game honoring Paul Allen and his name is going to be put up in the rafters so this is a really big deal he's going to be joining just 11 other people that are on this exclusive ring of honor he's the perfect recipient to be this 12th inductee for everything that he has done or did for Seattle he perched the Seahawks 1996 as you mentioned a very turbulent time in the city of Seattle because then owner Ken Baring tried to move the franchise to Southern California in fact they were pretty much 80% of the way there. I mean, it was that close to no longer having Seattle be the home of the Seahawks. And Allen stepped up to the plate. And while he wouldn't want to be called a savior, he did keep the NFL in the Pacific Northwest. They get their new stadium. And he put $130 million of his own money into the project to ensure that it was finalized and the Seahawks stayed put. And Seattle has enjoyed its greatest success during the time Allen was at the helm. 12 playoff appearances. Again, we keep hearing that number here for a reason, I think. Uh, Three Super Bowl appearances, one Super Bowl victory. Also had great success. 
as the Portland Trailblazers owner, and plenty of other great things that he did away from sports. Sports were not his only passion. Microsoft co-founder, well-renowned philanthropist. You can keep going on and on with Paul Allen, and uh, just an incredible figure in Seattle and really the world, the impact that he's had in a number of different capacities, and obviously his impact in Seattle is never going to be forgotten. No, exactly. And that's why I think that this is the perfect way of celebrating his life and, and what he has meant. Uh, as you mentioned, not only the Seattle, but the greater Pacific Northwest, the Portland Trailblazers. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of fans out there of the of the former Seattle Supersonics that would have loved to have, you know, uh, you know, some type somebody who would have stepped up in our community and kept the Sonics here. The, the fact that Paul Allen did that for football. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's so easy for the younger fans who don't remember just how lean those years were in the, the early 90s. You kind of mentioned that, Corbin. You know, th- this was not considered a football town. I mean, I'm literally looking at a, a picture right now of CenturyLink Field, um, as well as one of the first pitch uh, at then Safeco Field. And I remember when I first went into the art studio to try and buy one uh, of CenturyLink, and, and they told me that, this isn't a football town that you're not going to ever going to see a picture like that. And whereas the Safeco one was essentially sold out and to see the way that Seattle has become one of the preeminent football towns in the entire country. That's very much a testament to Mr. Allen. Yeah. The success that the Seahawks have had on the field certainly has helped to build that brand, but Paul Allen was the architect. And I think the big thing that fans have to understand here, and we've kind of gotten a little bit of this perspective from Pete Carroll, John Schneider, people that worked under Paul Allen. This is an owner who knew you don't want to interfere too much. In fact, he was a very hands-off owner. He picked the right guys, and he let his coaches coach. He let his front office workers do their jobs, his scouts, you name it. You do your jobs right, I'm going to stay out, and I'm going to let you guys do what you need to do to help us win football games. And I think that's the reason that you've seen an extended run of success with Mike Holmgren as the coach. And then they had the one-year blip with Jim Mora, and I think Paul Allen knew immediately, hey, I made a mistake. That was the wrong hire, and that's why he went out and got Pete Carroll. And we know what Pete Carroll has done during his time in Seattle. So they've had a lot of stability at the top aside from that one-year blip with uh, Jim Mora Jr. being the head coach and they've had a ton of success because of it and I think a lot of that's, that a lot of that stemmed from the ownership of Paul Allen certainly a legend in Seattle and again not a more fitting selection that you could come up with for that 12th inductee he is a true 12 the true 12 in Seahawks history with Blinkist you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books go to Blinkist.com slash locked on try for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. Coming up next, it's officially time for the Monday Mailbag. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can in the second quarter. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Crushing it at work, or maybe you're laser focused on beating that boss level on your latest video game, that doesn't mean you shouldn't eat. DoorDash can help you get your next meal from your favorite restaurant in minutes. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Whether you're in Seattle, LA, New York City, it doesn't matter. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So you might find a new favorite too. With DoorDash, 
delivery in all 50 states in Canada. Order from your local go-tos or choose your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and Chick-fil-A. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code Locked On. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code Locked On. Before we move forward, let's talk about sex. Good sex. Remember the days when you were always ready to go and you could increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed? Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, this isn't just for guys who can't perform, it's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor's visit, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code Locked On. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code Locked On to try for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Welcome back, 12s. This is the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, alongside Rob Rang. Later in the third quarter, Rob and I will discuss several takeaways on the defensive side of the football from Seattle's 17-point win in Arizona. Before we do that, however, Rob, we've got some questions to answer in our Monday mailbag, so let's rock and roll. First question coming from Ryan Minson. He writes, Pete said Ethan Posick is going to be out for a while, so, so should we expect him to be listed on this injury report every week, or does he get an IR designation? Well, that with you know, information is still kind of coming out right now, so I, I'm not so sure that we are going to see Ethan Posick out for you know getting the IR designation, uh, you know, but. You know, that that kind of remains to be seen. I mean, Pete Carroll has played it pretty coy in the past. When, I mean, when he said that, that a guy is going to be out for a while, then I think that we can't expect that it's not going to be a one- to two-week variety, but more in the three- to four-week. Obviously, if it extends much past that, then you do have to look at the at the IR possibility. Fortunately, I, I do believe that, that Seattle has greater depth at, at in, in, all along the offensive line, really, than they've had in recent years. So while Ethan Postick, I believe, has been arguably Seattle's most most improved offensive lineman, he is still a reserve at this point due to the fact that the Mike Yapati and DJ Fluker have played terrific ball as Seattle's starting guards. Yeah, Pete Carroll today admittedly did not give the best injury description talking about Posick's neck issue, though he did mention something about the vertebrae, which immediately alarmed me a little bit. That never is something you want to hear, but uh, it sounds like they're they're somewhat optimistic maybe in the next couple weeks to be able to get him back. Trying to get him back for Thursday night on such a quick turnaround seems very unlikely. It's too bad, Rob, they don't have like baseball does. When they put a player on the disabled list that you can make it retroactive to a couple weeks earlier. So if a guy has an injury that you think, oh, he'll only miss like 10 days and then it lingers, you can make it a retroactive disabled list. So maybe it's a 15-day DL, but we've already served 10 of it, so he can come back in five days. The NFL doesn't do that. 
So if Posick does go on injured reserve, you're not going to get him back for eight weeks. So he'd be out for most of the rest of the season. You could still activate him near the end if you wanted to, but that seems like something Seattle's not going to do here unless they absolutely have to. It still sounds like there's some optimism. Like I said, maybe in the next couple of weeks they'll be able to get him back, but right now the neck is still giving him some issues. So Thursday night still seems highly unlikely. Misfit74 writes, what is the real story with Bradley McDougald's position? Every week we, the people, the media types talk of him playing either strong safety or moving back to strong safety, but he's played 77% of his snaps at free safety. He did have a graph that went with this. I kind of would refute this a little bit, but what are your thoughts on this, Rob? Well, I just think, well, I look at Bradley McDougal. He was a guy that played corner back in college um, and then adjusted and played the safety position at the Tampa Bay Bucks. And he was a guy that was never known for having elite straight line speed. And, you know, obviously Seattle had a free safety in Earl Thomas that had that elite 4-3 straight line speed. Bradley McDougal is not Earl Thomas, but he is a much more instinctive player, just a more reliable player in terms of his coverage. That's one of the knocks that that, that some inside the VMAC would, would tell you kind of behind the scenes that, that Earl Thomas at times had to be kind of told where to line up. And Cam Chancellor did a phenomenal job of that. Bradley McDougal is kind of the glue in the back uh, that way in that he lines guys up. He is very smart. I thought that it was a savvy move by Seattle, frankly, to, to play McDougal as much as they did the free safety position against a guy like Kyler Murray because you just didn't know if this guy breaks a ta- or if he breaks through as a runner or if he has that incredible arm and he's very accurate on deep balls. Um, then I thought that it, ha- it was absolutely critical that, that Seattle had a reliable tackler and pass coverage uh, free safety in that game in particular. And that's important in every game. But I think that that was important in this game in particular. And, 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 and on the flip side, at the strong safety position, whether it be Lano Hill, whether it be uh, you know, Marcus Blair in, in the future, um, I think that's more the, the thumpers that you're looking for in Seattle's scheme. And, and again, because Seattle played their base defense as much as they have, then you don't necessarily need those thumpers. You need more cover guys. So I, I think that the, the real story, getting back to the, the original question, is that you have one of the more versatile safeties uh, in the league, frankly, um, and, and especially in the way that he fits into Seattle's scheme. And so that's why McDougal is going to continue to be kind of that eraser, that guy you're going to move from left to right, from free to, to, to strong, just because he does give you so many, so many versatile options. Going back to the graph that was was posted with this question from Misfit74, I think that there's some misleading things here when you're looking at Bradley McDougald and where he's played at these first four games. One thing to keep in mind, the Seahawks did have two games without Tedrick Thompson, so Bradley McDougald was getting a lot more snaps as a free safety because Thompson was not available and he's their starting free safety normally. So certainly that's going to skew your numbers as far as where his snaps have been at. But I think it's also worth noting, you mentioned the fact, Rob, that they're running a lot more of their base defense. I think they've also done a lot more two-deep coverages, and really we talked about this even in the preseason. It kind of looks to me like the Seahawks in post-Earl Thomas time that they're going with two safeties that maybe are a little bit more interchangeable. Rather than saying we've got a straight free safety and strong safety, we got two guys 
that maybe can play both. Now, Tedrick Thompson is strictly a free safety to this point, but Lano Hill and McDougald and Marquise Blair, all those guys can play both safety spots. So they've got a lot of versatility there. So I think this just goes back to the fact he can play all over the place. And I don't necessarily know that he's played almost 80% of his snaps as a true free safety, but he's been all over the place. So again, like Rob said, it just shows the versatility that this veteran brings to Seattle's otherwise really young secondary. Casey Reynolds writes, Kendrick seems to have missed a lot of tackles this year. Is this an aberration or do we need to come to expect bad tackling in exchange for his speed and blitzing ability? Well, I think that that is one of the things that you're going to see with Michael Kendricks is he's kind of a thumper. Uh, he was a player who I always thought, uh, you know, physically speaking, probably could play that that middle linebacker position. And there's not a lot of guys who play on the outside who I think can slide inside and, and be that guy. He, he just doesn't have quite as long of arms. Um, he, he is a guy that kind of relies on knocking people down rather than wrapping up at times. At the same time, I think that we are getting to the point now where every single time he misses any kind of tackle, um, then, then people are just going to kind of knock him down for that. And he does make so many dramatic plays. And that was one of the things that the that the the uh, you know the person asking the question, which thank you for your question, I think it's a good one because you did mention his speed, and I, I think that. That you know, anytime you're going to knock a player for one aspect of their game, especially one who's been as productive as Michael Kendricks has throughout his career, then you have to acknowledge what he does so very well. And he does have that great straight line speed. He does have the versatility to be able to play in coverage. And and as we saw against the Cardinals, he also was very effective in, in rushing the quarterback with the two sacks and could have very easily been a third sack uh, of Kyler Murray in this game. I look at Kendrick's game the first few weeks here. Obviously, the Saints game, he had several missed tackles against Alvin Kamara. He missed a couple yesterday trying to tackle David Johnson. So again, it's the same theme here, running backs as receivers in space. But I look at Kendrick's career as a whole, and that has not usually been a major flaw in his game. So I'm not concerned about that in the long term. It's still, I mean, you can still make an argument the first month is really the preseason because a lot of these starters don't play much at all during the real preseason anymore. So these guys are just trying to shake off the rust for the first month. And I thought he played one of his best, if not his best game as a Seahawk yesterday with the ability to get in the backfield and get to the quarterback, made a couple other nice plays in the run game, the ability to cover in space because of his athleticism. So I think the Seahawks are willing to live with the fact the last few weeks that maybe he's missed a few tackles, but he's done so many good things to make up for it. And Pete Carroll clearly wants him on the field. That's why they continue to roll out their three linebackers in their base defense as much as they are and haven't really made any changes. That's their best 11, so they're going to stick with that moving forward. Alex Wright why does the league keep insisting on Thursday night games? The product sucks, and I believe it shortens careers. Do you agree? <laughs> this is a good question, Rob. It, it is, and I absolutely agree, but it's not going to change anytime soon because they are making money hand over fist. And and so I think they, the NFL and, and frankly, college football, I mean, everybody, they, they realize that, that – Football is America's cup of coffee, and, and they they really uh, are going to try and take it up for as much as it's as it's worth. I think that the caliber of football being played on most Thursday nights is is pretty disappointing, um, and oftentimes is just basically a, a subpar pack, a subpar product. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that you're going to see a subpar product this week. I think that you're going to see two very, very talented divisional rivals absolutely square off. I think it's going to be an epic game um, and a lot, one that, that Seahawks fans are certainly going to want to be uh, excited and, 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 and attend this one because uh, I think it is going to be that competitive. 
I agree with the fact that it, you know, I don't know if it necessarily shortens careers, but it's certainly being somebody, even at the high school level, I was tweeting about this earlier. I can remember Saturday mornings after varsity games, barely being able to get out of bed. And that was high school football, playing both sides of the ball and never really getting off the field. So, I mean, you had reason to be sore, but I can only imagine what these guys feel like when they get up after an NFL game. And then you got to start putting your... Uh, mind to the task of, well, guess what? I get to go be in another train wreck in less than four days. And so I I understand the players are going, what they're going through is just incredible. And I, I really wish the league would make the change. These Thursday games came after an additional buy. I'd like the season to start one week earlier. Heck, make it three preseason games and then have an 18-week season where there's still just 16 games. The NFL would never agree to that, though. They would want an extra game thrown in there. But it seems to me like asking players to do two games in five days is just asinine. And I've thought that ever since the Thursday night games started but like you said Rob uh, this is all about the bottom line and the NFL is making a ton of money off this so there's no way in hell they're going to be changing course here Thursday night games are here to stay so coaches like Pete Carroll they're going to take the positive approach here we've got a system in place we believe to get prepared for these games the good coaches are going to be able to do that the good players are going to be prepared and so that's the best you can do with the situation because it's not changing. Last question here real quick. Megan writes, and I think this is a perfect question because we are entering the Thursday night game and the Seahawks have worn a certain uniform a couple times in these Thursday night games. Megan writes, preferred uniform, wolf gray or action green? Uh, just because I value my eyesight, I'm going to go with wolf gray. The The action green, I think, is a, is a really cool look. But when there's 11 guys on the field and you're watching all that green fly around, um, then to me, it's a little bit like watching Boise State football or Eastern Washington football, um, you know, just, just with their colored fields. And so it's a little bit uh, strong for my senses. But then again, I'm an old 43. Maybe the young bucks out there uh, like the, the brighter colors. Well, that might be the case here because I, I think the wolf gray uniforms are the ugliest ones the Seahawks have in their current collection. And I love the action green, uni- green uniforms. Always been a big fan of them. And yes, they're really bright. Yes, you could make the argument they're kind of obnoxious, but they're so different than what any other team wears. And so I really, and if you talk to the players, I've talked to tons of players about this. The Seahawks players love them. So, you know, maybe it's just because the uh, players are younger. Like you said, maybe that's part of it. But they really love that different-looking uniform, and I do too. So I, I don't know if they're wearing them Thursday night. I don't know what uniform they're wearing. Most likely probably going to stick with their blue-on-blue blue like they do most home games. But they wore their greens against the Rams a few years back, so maybe they'll do it again on Thursday night if they do. Uh, I'm excited about it. I know a lot of people out there, like Rob, not necessarily, don't want to go blind, but uh, I enjoy watching them play in those uniforms. Coming up next after the break, it's time to talk some defense. The Seahawks played plenty of it yesterday in the desert, and Rob and I will be breaking down the stellar performance. We'll be right back in the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm Corbin Smith alongside my co-host Rob Rang. Rob, yesterday the Seahawks pick up their third win of the season. Had not started 3-1 and one since 2013, so it's been a while since they had this good of a start. Some would say, well, you haven't beaten a team with a win yet, which, yes, that's true, but... All wins in the NFL are difficult to come by, especially considering how poorly the Seahawks have played, despite the fact they won most of these games, how poorly they played in Arizona recently. 
Yeah, exactly. It was a very encouraging game. I mean, you're going up against a, an offense that some had, had characterized as being revolutionary. It was going to take over the NFL, and you had the very perfect quarterback, um, you know, hand selected by the, the new head coach to you know to to use this offense. You have a future Hall of Famer, Larry Fitzgerald, who obviously um, you know passed Jerry Rice um, for. For catches, I mean, just a uh, you know, just a phenomenal performance by the Seahawks. I thought that it was again. I mentioned before in the first quarter, I thought it was their most complete game, and I think a big part of that was was their defense. And we saw the pass rush, you saw the speed of Seattle's linebackers, um, and you, you saw some big plays, some big hits um, by Seattle's defensive backs as well. I mean, sure, you got the Cardinals are going to get some yardage, going to make some big plays, but. They shut down one of the more dynamic athletes you're ever going to see at the quarterback position, a terrific all-around receiver, or, uh, running back in David Johnson, uh, and, and then limited the Cardinals to, to just a few fairly meaningless catches by their wide receivers, basically taking Arizona's offense and just shoving it down their throat. You take out Kyler Murray's touchdown run he had early in the fourth quarter that made it 20-10. to 10. You take that play away. I mean, yes, the Seahawks missed some sacks. They let him get away. He's so slippery. He's going to do that. He's like Russell Wilson in that regard. There's going to be times you think you have him bottled up, you think you got him for a sack, and then he's somehow going to escape. He's like Houdini back there. And there's only a handful of quarterbacks in the league that can do that. He is one of them. But you look at the numbers, the Seahawks have to be thrilled with what they did. I mean, it's not like the Cardinals' offense has been completely inept the first part of the season. They've had their moments where they let end of that Lions game, suddenly Detroit couldn't stop them in the second half. So this is an offense that can turn on a light switch and really quickly put a bunch of points on the board. That did not happen yesterday. The Cardinals were held to 321 total yards on offense. Their net passing was 206, 241 if you don't include the sacks the Seahawks had against Kyler Murray. Really, if you take David Johnson out of the equation here, he had eight catches for 99 yards on the backfield. So same issue that Seahawks had against Kamara. They had the same problem with Johnson this game, but he didn't score any touchdowns off of it. So in the end, not quite as bad of a week, but still that's something the Seahawks are going to have to work on moving forward. But Larry Fitzgerald, five receptions for just 47 yards. You will take that any week you can. He's still an outstanding receiver, even at this stage of his career. They really did a great job bottling up their receivers in this game and really limiting Kyler Murray's options downfield. We know that's a strength for him is the deep ball. He was not able to get that going because quite frankly, the secondary just did, didn't allow receivers to get open downfield, and they forced Murray to take the dump-offs uh, in front, and they did a better job. Still gave up some yardage after the, after the catch this week, but did a much better job tackling in space. Oh, no question about it. I mean, you mentioned the, just the fact that there was a lot of dump-off passes, and that's, uh, again, I think a testament to Seattle's ability to, to cover those receivers deep. Um, you know, they're... You had David Johnson, who, as you mentioned, Corbin, had eight catches for 99 yards. I mean, again, you're going to take that any day of the week that you have an offense that's built on getting the ball out to slot receivers, out to its receivers in space. And instead, you, the, the Cardinals were forced to, to rely on those quick passes to the running back. Um, and, and that's just not likely to result in the big plays. Um, and so you, you look at just the, the average, um, you know, the, the Cardinals only had – what was it? Uh, the the five receptions by Fitzgerald, four receptions by Kirk, and then two receptions by Keyshawn Johnson, a, a rookie from Fresno State. 
and, and none of them wound up being very big plays. And so if you can take a team's wide receivers away and then just basically limit them to, to running backs, and in the case of the Arizona, they're not going to throw the ball to tight ends very often. They threw one ball to their tight end, quite the opposite, of course, at Seattle, then it basically pins one hand behind the offense's back. And, and so you do that against a defense as talented as Seattle's, it's most likely going to result in the victory. You look at Kyler Murray's first four games, one thing that Ed Smith talked to me about last Friday was that, you know what, he he has some Russell Wilson in him in this regard. Early in his career, Russell Wilson would hold on to the ball too long trying to make plays, and Kyler Murray does that too. He believes so much in his athleticism, and you can understand why, but he holds on to the football hoping that receivers can get open, and that just did not happen yesterday. Even when the Seahawks were able to get to him and then Murray slipped out of sacks it still felt like the coverage was holding up and I got to give a shout out to Shaquille Griffin again I've talked about him time and time again early this season but even pro football focus who last year ranked him one of the worst corners in the NFL he's putting up near elite numbers on their grading system now and and rightfully so I mean this dude every week is just flat out balling he's making pass deflections he's getting in receivers faces he's not giving up the cushion he's given up in the past and it just totally looks like he has really found his groove now after changing up how he handled things in the offseason. This looks like the player the Seahawks envisioned him becoming when they picked him in the third round a few years ago in the draft. Yeah, he's. we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago. I mean, 16 pounds he, he had lost from a year ago. I mean, that's... You know, 16 pounds a lot. He he does look that much quicker, that much faster. Um, and, and so he has basically been blanketing receivers in, in such a different way than, than some of the, the long press corners that Seattle has used in the past. As you mentioned, Corbin, that they are using more, more too deep coverages and things like that. I, it, you don't need that necessarily with the way that the Shaquille Griffin has been playing. I mean, he has been terrific. And obviously we, we say that going up against, uh, you know, a, a passing attack that it is again a little bit of the hand behind their back with the Cardinals obviously things are going to get a lot more difficult here with the Rams coming up this week and in some of the speedsters they have on that team this is going to be a game that I think Shaquille Griffin probably had circled on the calendar not just because you know it's your bitter divisional rival it's the team that won it all last year and won the NFC championship made the Super Bowl but I think he's got this game circled because both games against the Rams last year he struggled and those were two games especially the one at home he was exploited pretty bad, and I think he's going to want to go out and show that this strong start he's had is not a fluke going against a team that's got some really talented receivers, and the Rams are going to be in a bad mood. They just gave up 55 points to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a loss at home, so they're going to be looking to quickly turn things around just like the Seahawks did after their loss to the Saints, so you're going to be dealing with a very motivated offense. going to be a big test for Griffin and Trey Flowers in the secondary. I think we'd be remiss not to mention Jadim Devin Clowney and Ziggy Anza here in this segment too because we last week two or three times we're talking about you know what this is the game they got to get it going they've got to figure things out and sure enough obviously still plenty of room for improvement but Clowney makes one of the most fantastic plays you're going to see a defensive end make just everybody wants to know how athletic this guy is just watch this play on a screen pass from Kyler Murray, just reaching up one-handed, plucking the football out of the air with his left hand, hauling it in, and then goes 27 yards for the touchdown, stayed in bounds, and outran everybody. 
You just don't see defensive ends in the NFL that are 260, 265 pounds do that. Just a, He's just a phenomenal athlete. So that's what the Seahawks were trading for. That's what they were hoping this guy would become. And even though he only had one tackle in this game, he was in the backfield consistently. Michael Kendricks stole a sack from him in the first half. He had a couple other times he had Murray lined up and Murray slipped away. But I mean, they had to be really encouraged by what they saw from Clowney. It was clearly to me the best effort he's had in his four games the Seahawks. And then Ziggy Anza comes out, plays 39 snaps, uh, nearly double what he had last week in his uh, debut against the Saints. And he gets five tackles and the end of the game, he finishes off on a strong note. He brings down Kyler Murray on the final play of regulation to bring the game to an end. So he showed major signs of life this week after being pretty quiet in his debut. No, absolutely. Like we talked, we spent the first quarter, you know, kind of acknowledging what a what a fitting, uh, what a fitting thing it is that that, that Mr. Paul Allen's going to be the you know the twelfth inductee in the Seattle's uh, Ring of Fame or Ring of Honor, and um, you know that's the thing. I thought it was so fitting that Ziggy Ansah got that last sack to to end the game to snuff out the Cardinals' last chance. Um, you know, it's it's because he is a guy who is known as a battler. He is showing great toughness in, in fighting through some of the the injuries that he's gone through. And and we talked about this as you said, Corbin. That we talked about heading into the game. That, that Seattle had to be able to supply a pass rush. But at the same time, I was not convinced that we were going to see big numbers from Seattle's big pass rushers in Clowney or Ansa um, because Kyler Murray is that dynamic. But what I was confident was that the long arms, the strength of Seattle's defense events would be able to allow them to kind of corral Kyler Murray, get him off his spot and to be able to, uh, you know, basically force him to, to deliver passes in other ways, uh, whether it be to dump off passes to the backs exactly the way Seattle did. And then we, we mentioned on, so we, we mentioned Clowney, we have to mention Rasheem Green. I mean, what a sack that was. I mean, just the, yeah, I was going to ask you, you have to talk about Rasheem Green because that was to me, one of the big plays in the first half. It really was. And it's, it's not just the fact that it was in the first half and kind of set the tone. It was that this is a guy who, you know, is still just a pup. He's still just a young player. And he had the wherewithal to break down, not go for Kyler Murray's little spin fake or juking. I mean, he broke down. He made the tackle. He showed great athletic ability um, just because he was initially fooled. Had to run all the way out there. Very similar to the way Clowney accelerated once he got the, the, the ball in his hand and, and basically outran the pursuit angles of the offensive line. And I did not think that I would be saying that Rasheem Green essentially outran Kyler Murray's angle, but he did and then broke down and made the tackle. I mean, he swallowed Kyler Murray up and you could just see how small and frankly, how weak that a young quarterback can be at times when they are built like that. So that's the one thing that I've always kind of struggled with the comparisons between Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson while they're listed the same same height you, you see Russell Wilson break a lot of tackles because he's so compact he is powerful Kyler Murray is quick and he's more powerful than a lot of guys but he is not going to be able to rip through very many tackles and, and he certainly did not rip through Rasheem Green's what I was most encouraged by with that play from Green, you talked about the speed aspect. It was just explosiveness. We have not seen that from him, and I have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and he's had a couple plays here in the regular season. It seems like the light switch is starting to come on for him. You're starting to see that explosiveness off the line of scrimmage that he showed at USC, and I was really discouraged in the preseason because it felt like he was just kind of running through quicksand coming off the snap. I did not see that yesterday 
yesterday and some of the games in earlier in the regular season. I've seen a different looking player and maybe it's just confidence. Confidence, when you're not confident, it affects how you move. And when you're playing with a high level of confidence, as this kid clearly is right now, you are going to play at your best. You're going to play at your fastest. And we are seeing that from him coming off the line of scrimmage. I think it was just inc- it was an incredible performance overall by the Seahawks defense. When you consider that Pete Carroll's going against this offense is supposed to have four or five receivers out there at a time. They're going to run this air raid. Uh, they're going to be slinging the rock all over the place. And Pete Carroll says, you know what? I'm sticking with my 4-3 defense. This is my best 11 players. And they go in there and they hold them to 10 points in this football game. To me, just a phenomenal coaching job by Carroll and Ken Norton Jr. Getting these guys ready to go. And obviously, they were not happy with how they performed against the Saints in Week 3 and came out and played their best football game of the season. Really exciting development now going into a really big game here coming up on Thursday night against the Rams, which is going to have some bearing on who wins this NFC West title. The 49ers are out in front right now, but Rams and Seahawks are both 3-1, and one, so both these teams are still very much so in the hunt to win that division title, and this could be a huge game, especially for the Seahawks at home. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked on Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. On tomorrow's podcast, it's Throwback Tuesday. And Rob, I'm really excited about this one. There's a former Seahawk and former Ram that is one of my favorite Seahawks of all time. Great pass rusher. There's your hint for the day. We're going to be talking about a couple players that played for both NFC West rivals. And we'll also look at the offensive side of the football, including Russell Wilson's latest sensational performance in Arizona. Hope to have you listening in. Go Hawks.